The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For the Secret Church One study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC1. And this is Secret Church One, Episode 7. How many of you have ever done 10 o'clock to midnight Bible study in the Old Testament before? Anybody? Okay. We're all in the same boat. Uh, and, and feel free if you want to stand at some point, if you think that would be best. Uh, feel free if you need to do that. It's funny. Uh, and, and there's also water and plenty of coffee in the back. And we'll do another break at, uh, at the hour, um, around the hour. Uh, it's funny. When you go overseas and go in a different context and manners and customs are different and things that are things that people do in one country are offensive in another and not offensive in that kind of relationship. I, I laugh sometimes in some of the times I've had in the house churches teaching and in the middle of it, somebody will just randomly, just loud, just go, oh, <laughs> and that's not offensive. Uh, and so it's just kind of, nobody thinks anything of it, but just whenever it happens, I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm putting you to sleep. So anyway, you feel free if you feel compelled tonight to just let out a yawn, uh, if, that would, if that would be good, if that would help wake you and the others around you up. Um, what I want to do is uh, I want us to dive in to the prophets. I want us to hit, and I know, I said at the beginning, we don't need to slight the minor prophets, but we are going to slight them tonight. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. Let's have a moment of silence for Hosea through Malachi. Okay. Um, so uh, I, I know. I apologize. Uh, the notes are there on the internet. Uh, I just don't think we're going to be able to get all, all, all those minor prophets uh, in addition to um, uh, what we'll see. We'll see some of them come out and what we're going to do in part two. But I do want to hit the major prophets because they are going to be those books, sig- for, because they're significantly longer, are going to contain a lot more. They're going to inform our understanding of some stuff in, round, in this round two. So let's start where we left off. We'll dive into Isaiah through Daniel and then move on to uh, the next part. Prophets from among God's people. We've seen the history, seen the history, and we've seen the writings story of God's people, the writings of God's people, now the prophets from among God's people. Again, highlighting, and this is God. I picture the prophets as God's commentary on what's been going on in this whole time. So God's commentaries on the stories, story of God's people, what God says along the way, what God was thinking along the way, how he spoke to his people through these prophets. Remember the historical context amidst these prophets. There was a, it was a time, and, and prophets mainly in the, in the united monarchy, the divided monar- monarchy, that time period, it was a time of political, military, economic, social upheaval on all fronts, not just for the people of Israel. A time characterized by much unfaithfulness to God's covenant. The deterioration that we saw in the book of Judges just continued as kings dropped the ball and were disloyal to the covenant. And there was unfaithfulness, 19 northern kings who, who disobeyed God and not follow the Lord. Um, so, so we're constantly seeing God announcing his covenant and loyalty for those who keep his covenant or blessings on those who keep his covenant and judgment on those who don't. Remember that prophets speak of both the near future and the ultimate future. 
both the near future and the ultimate future. So what we're seeing when prophet Isaiah comes on the scene, he's speaking about stuff that's going on right there in the nation of Israel as they're about to be taken over by Assyria, but he's also speaking farther into the future. Not in every case, but we're seeing both, the near future and ultimate future. Remember also that much of the language of the prophets was poetic. Um, so we'll dive into these five, five prophets pretty quickly here, but I do want to give you an overview of them. Isaiah. Isaiah means the Lord saves. Very similar to Joshua. Jesus that we see in the New Testament. We've talked about that. Time period here is 760 to 680 B.C. Now, this is where that, that timeline, if you want to turn back every once in a while and look at that, it'll be helpful because remember what year that, that Israel was taken over by Assyria. It was 622 B.C. or 722 B.C. So. 722? That's right. Okay. So what we've got is Isaiah prophesying during this time, saying it's coming. And so he's looking to that. And he's mainly in Israel. The historical setting, Isaiah prophesied concerning the destruction of Israel by Assyria and the exile in Babylon. So he's talking about what's coming in in Assyria as well as the exile in Babylon. And God's people in all nations, he's saying, are destined for both judgment and salvation. We see both of these themes throughout the book of Isaiah. Practical advice to think through. There are two primary sections that comprise, I call Isaiah a miniature Bible. You know how many chapters there are in Isaiah? 66. 66 chapters, 66 chapters in the Bible. Isaiah really is split at one point. Isaiah chapter 1 all the way to 39 is talking about present judgment, about the judgment that is coming on God's people. 39 books that display the effects of sin and the judgment of God. When you get to chapter 40, verse 1, it's a completely different tone. Comfort, comfort my people. Comfort, God says. And so from 40 to 66, we see a picture of future hope. Present judgment, future hope. 39 books dealing with present judgment, 27 books dealing with future hope. Quite an interesting picture of part of what we see unfold in all of Scripture. Um, Look for four major ideas that I think are really thematically at the center of the book of Isaiah. The Lord is the Holy One of Israel. That's a phrase that's mentioned 30 different times. He's holy, and he requires his people to be holy. Israel is the Lord's holy people. We're seeing a relationship. The Holy One of Israel and the people are the holy people. Of, of, of the Holy One. Uh, Jerusalem is God's holy city. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 2, and holy mountain. We see Jerusalem as the center, kind of the apex of God's holiness represented in, in the temple that's there. And the Lord is calling the Gentiles, the nations, to worship him. We really see an emphasis on, on uh, the Gentiles, which we'll see unfold in a little while, especially there in Isaiah chapter 56. Is, Isaiah gives us a rich, rich picture of Christ. His birth, you know, Isaiah chapter 7, foretelling the birth of Christ. You've got his life, chapter 61, verse 1 and 2. Jesus later quotes in Luke chapter 4, Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me to anoint me to preach good news to the poor. That's the, that's the quote that he uses from Isaiah chapter 61. And then his death. There are a variety of, of, of chapters in Isaiah that talk about Jesus as the suffering servant, most notably Isaiah 52 and 53, that he was bruised for our Transgressions, He suffered for our iniquities, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And by his stripes we're healed. So that's Isaiah 52 and 53, a suffering servant. Um, and then his resurrection in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 3. So we see a rich picture of Christ in the book of Isaiah. Jeremiah, next guy. 
Jeremiah, basically, his name means the Lord appoints, the Lord calls. Jeremiah chapter 1 is a picture of that, of God calling out Jeremiah and, and saying, I have a purpose for you and I've created you for this purpose. Time period, 626 to 586 B.C. The historical setting here is he's prophesying during the last 40 years of Judah's history until its destruction at the end at the hands of Babylon. Remember, Judah, Jerusalem, the temple there was destroyed in 586 B.C. That's where Jeremiah ends up. And so for 40 years, he's looking forward to, not looking forward like, oh, Jerusalem's going down. That, not that kind of looking forward, but looking ahead to the fact that, that, that the, the temple was going to be destroyed in 586 B.C. And so over and over again, there's a call to repent and a return to covenant loyalty to God. Key chapters here, Jeremiah chapter 7, it's called the Temple Address. And basically it's, it's Jeremiah confronting the people of God and saying, uh, you've come to the temple over and over and over again, but you've missed the whole point. God has called you not to come and offer your sacrifices, but to hear him and obey him and to walk with him. Jeremiah 7, 23 and 24. Jeremiah 31, which we'll look at in a little while, is a chapter that talks about the new covenant. Jeremiah introduces the concept of a new covenant compared to what's been going on in the rest of the Old Testament. Practical advice, Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible. Some people think Psalms is. Psalms has the most chapters, but Jeremiah is actually the longest book in the Bible. So it's easy to get bogged down in reading through it. I mean, it's, and it's thick stuff. It's long and thick. The overall structure goes back and forth between Jeremiah personally and what's going on in the nation. Personally, his call, then national messages to Judah, then personal, his sufferings, Jeremiah's sufferings. And I want you to see that because Jeremiah, as a prophet of God, is identifying with God's people. It's not just I'm giving a message to all of them out there. He is identifying with it. It's personal for him as well as national for the people of Israel. God's heart for his people is revealed through the heart of his prophet. And that's one of the things that's most notable about Jeremiah. As you read it, you will begin to feel the weight that he felt. As he looked and he saw the sin around him. And Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because he felt what God felt. He wasn't just this uh, innocent bystander who was proclaiming condemnation on everybody and repent. What he was doing, he was feeling the weight of their sin, just as God does. God's heart for his people revealed through the heart of his prophet. He uses a lot of object lessons, potter's clay, clay pots, baskets of figs. Right after that, Lamentations. Lamentations. It's kind of like Ecclesiastes in the sense that it's not a very exciting book to read. It's more of a depressing book to read. The word literally means funeral poems, and that's what they are. What you've got is right after the destruction of, of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., the historical setting here is the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of Babylon. The fall of Jerusalem at the hands of Babylon. It's funeral poems that are very, very sad, very weighty, very heavy. If you can imagine the, the scenario, when, when we as the people of Israel, say, for example, were taken over by Jerusalem and they came in, or by Babylon, they came in and began to murder and slaughter and rape and kill and, and, and take us all and spread us out, make us slaves. Everything turned upside down. And it was a very, I mean, it was a heavy time. And if we don't know that, we have a hard time understanding Lamentations. But it's, it's a funeral poem because it's, 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 it's just very deep in sorrow. It reveals the suffering heart of God over sin. 
Most likely it was written by Jeremiah. Most people think it was written by Jeremiah, which seems to fit with the whole theme that we've seen just a second ago and the way he felt the heart of God's people. Each chapter is a separate funeral poem. So you've got five different chapters. Each of them is a separate funeral poem. What's interesting, and this is one of those things we don't catch because we're, we're English and this was written in Hebrew, but the verses in each chapter are arranged in, a, in an acrostic where the first letter of each stanza corresponds to the Hebrew alphabet. It's really interesting. When you look, you've got 22 verses in each one of the chapters, in chapter 1, 2, 4, and 5. 22 verses, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and, and they each begin. So if you can just imagine, you've got A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Every verse begins with, the, with that, that letter. Then you get to chapter 3, which is really the climax. It's actually 66 verses. And for, for every letter, there's three different phrases that are used. And so you've got three for each letter. You've still got the acrostic, but it's the climax. And, and here it is. Uh, you might, might want to underline this. I don't think we'll come back to it later. I want you to look at Jeremiah. This is an incredible, incredible couple of verses here. Knowing the context of what we've just talked about, look at Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3. It's the climax. In the middle of famine, thirst, cannibalism, rape, slaughter, all that's going on. In the middle of this climactic poem, the author, most likely Jeremiah, says this. Lamentations 3.22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. That's thick, ladies and gentlemen. We talk about how the Lord's mercies are new every morning, and we almost picture that being said in a time of, of great prosperity. Oh, yes, the Lord's mercies are new for me this morning. Jeremiah said that in the middle of this picture, the author of Lamentations. He said in the middle, and he said, great is your faithfulness, and I, my portion is in him, and I'll wait for him. Incredible picture of faith there. Um, chapter 3, the climax. Feel the weight of the destruction of the people of God. Key passage, Lamentations 3. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Okay, we've got two more left. Ezekiel. Ezekiel. A tough book to read. I, from the very beginning, it's like, what in the world is going on here? Ezekiel means God strengthens. His name means God strengthens. What we've got time period is 592 to 570 B.C. And the historical setting right there is he's prophesying to the Jews that are held captive by Babylon. In 606 B.C., Babylonians began deporting, Babylonians began deporting some of the Jews. And then a second group in 597, I mentioned when we were talking about history, 597 to 586 B.C., at 597 another group was being deported. That's when Ezekiel was deported. And so he is taken into exile, and he's prophesying to the people that are held captive. In fact, his calling was based on the fact that he was being deported, and God was going to use him to, to speak to the captives at that point. So that's the historical setting. Over 50 times, Ezekiel says, the word of the Lord came to me. What you see is the people in exile struggling, and they need the word. They need the word. The word of the Lord spoke to me. The Lord, of the Lord, word of the Lord came to me. Ezekiel's twofold purpose. He's promoting repentance and faith. It's time for us to repent. 
We are experiencing the judgment of our sin. It's time for us to repent. And he's stimulating hope and trust that there's something coming. God is going to restore us. The overall structure, that's basically what he, what he does. He talks about, he gives us a picture of his call. And then the judgment against Judah, the judgment against the nations eventually that are attacking Judah like Babylon. And then the restoration of God's people. It really reads like a picture book. Now I say that not to get the image of a very simple picture book. It's a pretty complex picture book, just all kinds of symbols and pictures. But you've got symbolic actions, visions, allegorical pictures all throughout. And it emphasizes the glory of God in the temple. One thing about Ezekiel, Jeremiah we saw, he felt the weight of what he was preaching. Ezekiel lived out his prophecy. There were things that God called him to do to illustrate what he was doing among his people playing at war, lying on his side for a certain number of days, shaving his hair and beard, acting like someone fleeing from war, sitting and sighing. And then ultimately, Ezekiel, because he was a prophet, endured the death of his wife. And that was a picture of what he was prophesying about. He lived out his prophecy. Daniel, last one. Primary information for starters. Daniel means God is my judge. God is my judge. Time period, late 6th century, around 535, maybe somewhere around there, B.C. Daniel had also been deported to Babylon, and Daniel's a pretty sharp guy. And so he gets brought in to be a servant in the kingdom and gets elevated to various, various positions, served in three different kingdoms, the Babylonian kingdom, the Median kingdom, and the Persian kingdom. It was written, Daniel, written in both Hebrew and Aramaic. This is one of the things that's interesting about Daniel. And it's possible because... This was a time when, when they were exiled that he was writing things in Hebrew that were specifically supposed to be communicated to God's people just like it had been done before. So he writes in both Hebrew and Aramaic. And the whole point of this book is that God is sovereign over all kings and all history. He's sovereign over all kings. That's why you see King Darius saying the God of Daniel needs to be praised. You see the king, or king, God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego needs to be praised. King Nebuchadnezzar saying the God of Daniel needs to be praised. They're, he's declaring the God of, of these men, the Hebrews, needs to be praised. He, God is sovereign over all kings. Overall structure, we've really got a personal picture, one through six of stories, and then we've got some visions in chapter 7 through 12. That cha- those chapters, Daniel chapter 7 all the way through tra- chapter 12, are really probably would be described as the revelation of the Old Testament. That's the, the book of Revelation. This is, this is that kind of picture, apocalyptic visions of what's coming in end times. And the implications Daniel has for understanding Revelation are big. Um, Daniel's prophecy covers time from captivity of Jerusalem all the way to Christ's return to the earth to judge the nations and establish his kingdom. So that is the picture of Daniel. All right. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Amen. Okay. We'll go to, to part two. Like I mentioned, these notes are on, on the web. You can get those. Um, what you see is some of these themes over and over and over again in the prophets. Themes like, just to give you an overview, things of judgment and blessing, social justice, immorality, idolatry. Um, social issues are huge. Um, in some of those minor prophets that speak up, uh, especially like Amos talking about how the people of God had oppressed the poor and missed out on the whole point. So anyway, that's the picture. We'll see. We're going to turn to a couple passages here. Now, here's where you're really going to need your Bibles. Um, I hope you've got your Bibles. What we're going to do is instead of just doing an overview and really spending time in these, I want us to go throughout our Bibles, and I want us to look. The goal here to see 
why did God give us the Old Testament? Okay, we've got the overview. Ultimately, overarching, why did God give us these 39 books? What's the point? The Old Testament is the theology. Now, here's the foundation. The key to understanding how to interpret the Old Testament is understanding why God gave us the Old Testament. Now, this is big. I want to say that one more time. The key to understanding how to interpret, interpret basically how to understand what it means. The key to understanding what all these stories mean is understanding, first of all, what, why God gave us the Old Testament. What is the ultimate purpose? A few possibilities. Why do you think God gave us the Old Testament? One, for historical information. Well, we know that's not true because, because he doesn't give us all the historical facts. He doesn't, he doesn't fill in all the blanks. He definitely, God definitely picks and chooses parts of history to give us. So the purpose is not just so we'd have a good history of the people of Israel that lead up to Jesus. That's not just the point. What about for moral lessons or for character studies to teach us about how to be courageous or wise or brave or strong for moral lessons, for character studies, or really just ultimately for examples in life. Is that the purpose of the Old Testament? Now those three encapsulated together, I think are probably the primary way, primary reason we give that affect the way we interpret the Old Testament. Here's what I mean by that. When we go to the Old Testament, most often We look at the stories, and we use them as moral lessons, character studies, or examples for our lives. It starts ever ever when when we're children, going up in Sunday school or Bible study or whatever it may be, and we learn the story of David and Goliath, and we learn to have strength in our battles. And we we look at Abraham, and we learn to have faith. And we look at all these things, all these different characters. And we say, we need to be like them. We learn from them. And that's, these are the people that we, we picture, followers of God. We want to be like them. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not saying that it's not good to see some of these characteristics in these people. But I am saying we need to be careful not to make a quick jump from our lives to their lives. Because God was doing something much broader than just giving us some character studies. These guys are are playing a unique role in history. And what's interesting is when we study the Old Testament and begin to look at characters, we always identify with the hero in the story. Who studies David and Goliath and says, now we are the people who are scared to death in the background. <laughs> Nobody says that. You don't, you don't want to, you don't want to be. The per- We're going to study Cain and Abel, okay? Who are you going to choose? <laughs> we always see ourselves in the role of the hero. And we picture ourselves, whatever applies to them also applies to us. We look at, at Moses in Exodus chapter 1, and this baby that's born and that is saved from the destruction that was going on around there. And we automatically think, well, God will take care of me. And we equate ourselves with Moses instead of equating ourselves with the countless other Hebrew babies that did not make it through that. What right do we have to identify with Moses and not with the others? And there we begin to see how we can begin to misinterpret the Old Testament if we don't have an overall picture of why things are unfolding the way they are. And so that's what I want to say to us in this second part is that there's a much deeper purpose of the Old Testament than historical information, moral lessons, character studies, and examples in life. A much deeper purpose. You might even say a much higher purpose. I kind of look at it this way. A story like, like... Moses 
in Exodus chapter 1. I think we got three different levels going on here. Yes, we've got a personal level, what God is doing in the life of Moses. Then you've got a, a national level, what God is doing through this man, how he is providing for this man to lead his people out of, the, uh, out of Egypt into the promised land. And then you've got an even higher level, what God is doing, how God is using this story in the overall picture of the Old Testament. And that's what I want us to do. I want us to rise up and see the higher level. And I want us to see the overall story here. A foundational purpose. I believe there is a foundational purpose at the heart of Old Testament history. Now, if that's true, if there is one storyline, one overarching purpose in the whole Old Testament, if that's true, if there is a foundational purpose at the heart of this thing, then we want to know it because it's going to affect the way we understand. It's going to keep us from fragmenting because this is what we do Guys, we take the Old Testament, we fragment it into all kinds of different bits, and we can't put it together, and we just get frustrated, so we move on to the New Testament. And that, that hampers our ability to understand what God desires to teach us here. We need to know that story. We would want to apply it. Because here's the deal. The beautiful thing is, as we look at, at God's work in history, to realize that the God who is working in these guys' lives is also the God who is working in my life and that if there is a story that's begun in the Old Testament, that that story is still continuing today. And we're a part of that story now. So we want to apply it to our lives. We want to know it. We want to be able to apply what God is doing in all of history. Don't you, if God is doing something in all of history, don't you want to know so you can apply it to your life? Yeah, we want to know it. We want to apply it. And we want to proclaim it. Because there are all kinds of, in our culture today, all kinds of worldviews, ideologies, religions that are teaching things that are false and against the story of God. And if we know the story and we can proclaim it, then we can show its beauty and its grace and its truth amidst all the diverse and competing worldviews that are present in our world today. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.